and uh, thankful for uh, that we have, uh, uh, well, normally it's Eric, but uh, uh, Gibsons are here just to help everybody find their seats, so it's really helpful it's, um, during this kind of crazy time and where we're trying to social distance and assign seats, so I appreciate everybody's patience with that. Um, just a couple of uh, quick announcements uh, slash reminders is that uh, we do still have the offering box in the back, so if anybody has an offering to, to bring, that we do have it in the back. Uh, the other thing I want to uh, remind people of is that if you or anybody you know uh, needs any kind of uh, food, we do still have the, uh, the food pantry uh, that is available to people. If you have or know anybody that needs any assistance with that, please connect them to uh, myself or Jay or one of the deacons, and we'll make sure that uh, we can coordinate a time with somebody to, to go down and kind of uh, get uh, the things that you might need or, or, or if you know somebody that might need those things. Um, and then the other thing is that... Uh, actually, a couple of quick things. I uh, apologize. But um, uh, if it's a little cold in here, it's because the uh, furnace is, is broken. <laughs> um, and we're in the process of getting that fixed. So we apologize for that. And then lastly, just wanted to let you know that I, uh, I'll, Caitlin and, and I and the family will be on vacation uh, later today, this week. And so uh, next week, uh, I won't be preaching. In my stead will be Devin uh, preaching. And then leading us uh, in a time of, of singing will be uh, Chris Allen, which uh, most of you know. So that's all the announcements I have, and uh, let's uh, go to the Lord and worship the Lord through some songs. Me and uh, stand for our call to worship. Our call to worship this morning comes from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. As we focus on the resurrection this morning, let's look at this beautiful picture of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the theme of heaven's praises Robed in frail humanity And in our longing, in our darkness Now the light of life has come Look to Christ who condescended to God bless you ransom us. And come behold the wondrous mystery, He the perfect Son of Man. In His trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory, see the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to Unmeasured love untold. 
My refuge, my hiding place 
truth of our resurrected Savior and how we can live in relationship with Him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for His incarnation. We thank you for his crucifixion. We thank you for his resurrection. Lord, we do not serve a God who died and, and stayed dead, but we serve a God and we live for a God who rose from the dead, who conquered death on our behalf, who purchased our redemption, who has guaranteed our forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. You are worthy of your name. And you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. And as your people, we pray that you may give to us the hope that comes with the resurrection. Help us to be a people who live with that hope in our hearts, in our minds. Father, we pray that, that we would always reflect on the resurrection of Christ and what it means for us. We thank you for all the precious gifts that have been given to us through what he's done for us. So we pray that you may help us to be a people who have this hope abiding with us, a people who exude this hope, a people who, who proclaim this hope to one another and to the world as well through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those in our church who are, who are sick, who are suffering, who are going through just a difficult season in their lives. Father, we pray that whatever it is, whatever trials that they are experiencing right now, that it would not debilitate them. We pray that it would not incapacitate them. We pray that you may fill their hearts with hope that they may be able to endure and to persevere, confident that you are with them and confident that, that one day they will see you face to face and that all these troubles and all these worries and anxieties and fears will be extinguished. We pray that you would help them and give them the wisdom to know how to live with that hope in mind today. We pray for healing for those who need healing. We pray for dear brother Dennis as he recovers. Help him to get well. Father, we, we pray for, for church planters worldwide. Father, we pray that they may be a people, that they may be church planters, that they may be pastors who are filled with hope that comes through Jesus Christ, and with that hope that they may be strengthened to continue to press into the work that you have called them to do, despite the challenges and the difficulties as they face. We pray that you would provide graciously for them, 
We pray that you would provide the wisdom to know how to reach the lost in their unique context. Father, we pray for those who, who need buildings to meet in, that you would graciously provide for them. And that you would draw many people to them as they proclaim the gospel. We pray for FBC, Greater Rochester. We pray for the saints who gathered there. We pray that you would remind them this morning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, that they may rejoice in that glorious truth, that they may rejoice in the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and all that has been purchased through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our country. We pray specifically for the unity of all believers, Lord, which it seems like is so difficult to maintain, just given the the political divide. And as we come closer and closer to the elections, Lord, we and just the, the issues that seem to be dividing many Christians, Lord, we pray we we acknowledge the fact that the devil rejoices in the disunity of God's church, that the devil rejoices in the disunity of believers. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, your church universal, to maintain the unity that we have with Jesus Christ and the unity that we have with one another. That we would not call into question someone's faith because they are Republican or or they are a Democrat or whatever they think of the president or other issues, Lord. We pray that you would help us to maintain that unity, that you would help us to continue to proclaim the gospel, that you would help us to be defenders of the things that are gospel issues, and unashamedly so. Father, we pray lastly uh, for parents. We pray for for those who, uh, for parents who have uh, children who are out of the home, we pray that uh, that you would give them rest and that they would enjoy their times with uh, the children out of the home to be able to enjoy the time that they have after working hard and diligently in raising children, which isn't an easy task. That their days may be filled with the pursuit of of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for, for parents who still have children in their homes. Father, we pray that you would provide the grace, the patience, the consistency, the diligence, Lord, to do this difficult work. And even in the, the things that seem mundane, mundane the things that are so challenging and difficult when it comes to parenting, Lord, that they that you may fill all parents with, with joy, knowing that these precious lives have been entrusted to them, to us, to care for and to provide for. Father, we pray that you would help us as parents to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We pray for these precious ones, Lord. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they would know the gospel of Jesus Christ at an early age. We pray that they would know Jesus in an intimate and personal way. We pray that for the understanding, Lord, of the gospel and, to, and for the hearts, the affections, Lord, to embrace that gospel, to help us as parents to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize to our own children until they Lord willing, become believers, and then we can disciple them as followers of Jesus Christ. We pray that you provide the wisdom that we need as parents to give them Jesus. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us, for all that you give to us. We thank you for the hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And it's through the resurrection that you can call us your sons and daughters. And as your children, we pray also the prayer that Jesus, our elder brother, has taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would, please turn to John chapter 20. John 20, verse 1. Read down to verse 18. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed." For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Jesus, we come before you this morning and we want to reflect and the glorious reality of your resurrection. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to be able to reflect on this truth and the significance of this event for our lives. And I pray that you may help me to communicate the truths of your word in an understandable way and that you would cause your words to bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we read and reflected on the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And and as we read through John chapter 19, we saw some some what seems like insignificant details surrounding the the event of the death of Christ, such as uh, the the tunic of Jesus being gambled for by the Roman soldiers. Uh, Another one was Jesus saying that, "I, I thirst from the cross. And then another one was the fact that Jesus' bones were not broken, as opposed to the other two criminals whose bones were broken, specifically their kneecaps. And, but we also saw that these are not just insignificant details, but actually very significant because they are fulfillment of Scripture, where they were foretold in the past, and they were intended to point to the death of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one other detail in John chapter 19, surrounding the death of Christ that I didn't mention last week that I think would be helpful to think about this morning. So at the end of John chapter 19, Jesus dies on the cross. His body is taken down from the cross. And they, it says in John 19 that they laid the body of Jesus in a new tomb. 
Now, this is actually really significant. Why? Well, because back then, it was common for a tomb to be occupied by more than just one deceased person. They would put more than two, probably three, even four bodies into one single tomb. But in this case, it tells us, John 19, that Jesus was put into a brand new tomb that is unoccupied before, unoccupied at that moment. And the reason why that is so significant is because when the tomb, or when the, the stone is rolled away, that is sealing the entrance of the tomb, and it's said that a person walks out of the tomb, well, then there's no question who might that be, because only one person was in that tomb, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, unlike the other Gospels, John doesn't give us all the details surrounding the death of Christ, all the things that happened uh, prior to the, or, or leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even he can kind of condenses the resurrection of Jesus Christ in comparison to the other Gospels. He fast-forwards to Sunday and then just gives us sort of a... Uh, very briefly, just kind of what happens, and kind of his own telling of what happens in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then, let's see what happens. First, the empty tomb. So John's account of the resurrection of Christ begins with Mary traveling to the tomb early. Well, it was still dark, and she finds the tomb, or the, the, the tomb empty. She finds that the stone has been rolled away. She returns to the disciples, and she says, they have taken away the Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Now, if you read the other Gospels, kind of oddly, you'll see, you actually read that Mary didn't travel alone, but Mary traveled with other ladies to the tomb to see the body of Jesus. Not only that, but it also tells us that Mary and the others witnessed the stone being removed, they saw two angels, and they conversed with the angels, and the angels had told the ladies, including Mary, that Jesus must rise from the dead, and that the, and that the ladies actually remembered that Jesus had said this thing before his death. And they go back and tell the disciples. But here in John, John only tells us that Mary was there. Now, it's important to remember that each author of their gospel had a specific emphasis that he wanted to relate to the readers or different things that they wanted to, to stress or impress upon the mind of the reader. And so John is no different for for his reasons, he only tells us about Mary and her account of the resurrection. But then it's hard to kind of reconcile the different accounts. Well, was Mary alone or was she not? Did she witness the, the stone being moved away or did she not? Right, and, then, and quite frankly, um, people, scholars have different answers. And even when somebody has a plausible answer, there's still some, some holes in the answer. But I think the most plausible answer is the fact that Jesus, I think, is that Mary did go to the tomb, not twice, which has been considered before, that maybe she went twice, but I think she went once and saw all that she saw, then went back to the disciples and believed, but that belief was mixed with some unbelief as well. And we'll get to a little bit more on that in the second point. But so that, just hold on to that for now. The fact that Mary may actually be struggling with her faith. Believed, but still at the same time unbelieved. Not fully and genuinely, truly believed in what she had witnessed. So, continuing the story, Mary tells the disciples. And most of them don't take Mary seriously with the exception of Peter and John, who at least take her seriously enough to go to the tomb themselves and see for themselves what's happened. And so they, they run in haste. Now, I'm kind of an aside. I'm, I'm a little struck by Peter's haste because if you remember, just a few days ago, Peter had denied the Lord Jesus. But after that third denial, it tells us that Jesus actually looked outside to the courtyard. And at that moment, Peter and Jesus locked eyes. Right, and Peter ran away in haste, in shame. But here, Peter, hearing that Jesus may have actually resurrected from the dead, gets up and makes haste to the tomb to see for himself. And not only that, but later, towards the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus, Peter also makes haste again to run towards Jesus. 
And I wonder, right, do you show that kind of haste as well? Right, when there's a sin to be confessed, when you're needing to reconcile to God, do you show that kind of haste to run to the Lord Jesus? When you have erred or sinned against a brother or sister, or perhaps a, a friend or a spouse or your children, do you make haste to pursue reconciliation? Or do you run in haste in the opposite direction, avoiding confrontation, avoiding the conversation, avoiding the awkwardness of perhaps admitting that you have erred or have been wrong. Jesus Christ right, took the shame of the cross and the sting of death in order to purchase our forgiveness so that we may, so that we may be reconciled with God. Not only that, but Ephesians 4 tells us that we ought to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. So that this forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ enables us, it frees us to be able to forgive one another and pursue that reconciliation and unity with one another. Right? So rather than making haste in the opposite direction and not pursuing unity and reconciliation, instead we, pers- we make haste to pursue that unity with the Lord Jesus, with those that we have sinned against or we have wronged. Because that's what we're called to do. And even in Right, and even times of joy, times of happiness, and times of peace, right? We make haste. We should make haste to the Lord to continue to worship Him, to praise Him, because He is worthy. And even, and especially in times, right, when things are tough, when things are difficult, and you're filled with anxiety and worry and fear and distress, right? We make haste to the Lord and run to the Lord as refuge. So Peter and John, they run to the tomb. And they see for themselves that the tomb is actually empty, just had Mary had said. Now, it wasn't until John stepped into the tomb that he believed. He saw the the linen that was there where Jesus' body was laid, and also the the, the cloth that was over his head was folded neatly and placed to the side. Now, if this was a case of grave robbing, well, then why would the cloth even be there in the first place? If somebody was intending to rob the body of Jesus, then why go through the trouble of removing the linen cloth from his body and even taking the face cloth and folding it neatly to the, and putting it to the side? It's like a thief breaking into your house and turning everything upside down, getting everything they want, and on their way out, they put everything back to their place and having the time to vacuum your house. Right? It doesn't make any sense. And surely the Romans did not steal the body of Jesus because they would not benefit in any way to take the body of Jesus. And anybody who would be intending to rob the body of Jesus from the tomb would have to go through the Roman soldiers. And I'm not sure if John put all these pieces together when he saw the tomb empty and he saw the linen cloths just lying there. But it tells us that he believed. Now, I hesitate to put my entire confidence in his faith and maybe even Peter's faith because of what they do afterwards. Afterwards, it tells us that after witnessing the empty tomb and even believing that the disciples just go home. Back to whatever it is that they were doing, the task of the day. I mean, I mean, after seeing the tomb empty, after seeing the body of Jesus, your teacher and master that's no longer there, and even perhaps even believing that Jesus has actually risen from the dead, I mean, how do you go back home? So that tells me that there's still some unbelief on their part. So then, let's keep going. Second, Jesus lives. So Peter and John go home, but Mary stays, and she's weeping. And then it tells us that two angels appear sitting in the tomb. So the tomb was once empty, but now it's occupied again, not by Jesus, but by two angels. And I don't know if Mary, maybe it's just her weeping and her eyes are just filled with tears and she said, their vision is blurred and she doesn't recognize the people who are standing before her or sitting there. I mean, I would think that she kind of has to notice because at one time they weren't there before when Peter and John entered the tomb. But now suddenly 
two individuals appear. They're angels. They're dressed in white. And they ask her, why is she weeping? So not only realizing that Jesus has risen, not realizing that there were actually two messengers of the Lord sitting in the tomb, but much less realizing that this is actually intended to be a picture of a reality that we see in a key, in a key object in the Old Testament. So Moses was commanded or instructed by the Lord to put to construct a container with a lid. And on that lid, and this was known as the, the Ark of the Testimony, or the Ark of the Covenant, and on the lid, right, we had, there were supposed to be two angels of gold facing each other with their wings spread out and their wings pointed to one another. And then that space in between the two wings was considered to be the mercy seat, the meeting place of God and Moses. It is the place where God would speak to Moses, it tells us in the book of Leviticus. And not only that, but it also was intended to have another function. So according to Leviticus 16.14, it says, And he that is the priest, the high priest, shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goats of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So not only was the mercy seat the place where, where Moses would go to meet with God and hear from God, but the mercy seat was the place where the high priest would go and take the blood of the, of the, of the, of the sin offering and sprinkle it on that space between the two angels, the mercy seat, seven times, symbolizing completeness, perfection. And the point was to atone for the sins of God's people. And here in the tomb that was once now, what's, what's, it was once empty and now it's occupied by two angels sitting on one side and the one on the other side to where, where the body of Jesus laid. Intended to point the picture to the picture of the reality of this mercy seat where atonement was, was provided for. Right, it would have been concerning if the body of Christ was still there with two angels there, one at the head and one at the feet, because it would have meant that the sacrifice wasn't acceptable. That even if there was one taint of sin in the life of Jesus, that sacrifice would have been accept, unacceptable. Right, but the scriptures tell us that Jesus committed no sin, Jesus knew no sin, and that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. So the fact that the body was not there in the tomb means that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was found acceptable to God. That Jesus, being both the high priest and the one who is, whose blood is sprinkled, is the one who atones for the sins of God's people. He enters into the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest only could enter, to sacrifice himself, sprinkling the blood over the mercy seat so that his people could be spared from the wrath of God and be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled to God. So this is what that is intended to point to with these two angels occupying the tomb. Mary is so, still so, so concerned about the body of Jesus. Where is the body of Jesus? Now realizing that if the body of Christ was still there, then she's got much more important matters to be concerned with. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 16, and 17. Apologies, I think in, the, in your bulletin, I think I only have 16. But 1 Corinthians 16, 1516 says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But that is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us. That if the body of Christ was still there in the tomb, it means that we are still in our sins, that our faith is worthless. 
But the fact that the body is not there, that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead, means that we've been forgiven of our sins. That our faith is based, on, based upon a risen Savior who has purchased our redemption. The empty tomb means that we've been forgiven. So Mary is still weeping. And then Jesus appears to Mary. And again, still, still, Mary is so concerned with the body of Jesus. Where is the body of Jesus? And supposing that Jesus was a gardener, tell, tell me where the body of Jesus is so I, may, so I may come and take it away. Until Jesus calls her by name says, Mary. And then she believes. You see, with the disciples witnessing the empty tomb and believing to some degree, with, the, with Mary so concerned with the body of Jesus Christ, and according to the other gospel accounts, witnessing what she had witnessed with the, with the seal of the tomb being opened and the angels telling her and the others what had happened, and yet still so concerned with the body of Jesus, it tells us, right, that there's that there still isn't a full embrace of what has happened. The Gospel of John, the entirety of the Gospel of John, shows us what what the nature of true, saving, genuine faith is by telling us what it's not. So, For example, early on in the Gospel of John, we read that many people believed in Jesus, but it tells us at the end of John chapter 2 that Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. In other words, he knew what was in the heart of these so-called believers. The lame man that was healed by the pool was healed by Jesus and didn't care to know the name of the person who healed him until he was questioned by the religious authorities. And then Jesus later on finds him again. He finds, he discovers his name, and then what does he do? He goes to the religious teacher and tells him, hey, the man who healed me was Jesus. Now, and, and we see this most clearly in the Gospel of Mark, but to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus, which the layman did not. John chapter 6, after feeding thousands of people, these so-called followers of Jesus, there's some dialogue between Jesus and the people who received this miraculous provision from the Lord, and it tells us that they could not accept the words of Jesus, and so they stopped following Jesus, and Jesus is left with his few disciples. Over and over again, we read in John that so many people were divided concerning Jesus. They have heard him. They have heard his teachings. They have witnessed the signs and the miracles of Jesus. And yet, they still were undivided. They were still confused about who Jesus is. John chapter 3, it tells us that this is the judgment of the world, that they have loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, for sure, his own disciples showed greater faith than most, but it was yet to be a true saving faith. It's important for us to understand that true, genuine saving faith comes from believing in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God who has come into the world to die on the cross for our sin, fulfilling all righteousness. And it goes further than that. The gospel doesn't stop there, but the gospel also tells us that Jesus did not stay dead, but rose from the dead three days later and ascended to the Father. And even then, the gospel doesn't end there because the gospel must conclude with a call to come and follow Jesus. So if someone believes in those things and responds to the call of the gospel, then that is true, genuine, saving faith. When Jesus calls out to Mary by name, and she finally recognizes that Jesus is there, standing, alive, and well, risen, it dispels the unbelief. How do we know? So in verse 17, in John chapter 20, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And in, he, and in this way, Jesus speaks to the unity that believers have with Jesus Christ and with God the Father. He says to Mary, go to my brothers, go to the disciples and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. That I am of the Father by essence, by nature, by Jesus is divine. He is of the Father by his essence. But believers are of the Father by adoption. That through Jesus Christ, through his death and burial and resurrection, that believers, that those who trust in Jesus are then adopted into the family of God and they have become sons and daughters of God. So Mary believes in Jesus and she follows Jesus by doing what he commands. He tells her to go and tell my brothers, tell the disciples what you have seen. Right, and this is what we do with the gospel. Right? We go and we tell. We don't receive and we keep. The gospel demands to go and tell. And the, and the scriptures don't tell us how often you need to be sharing the gospel in order to know that you are genuinely saved. The question is, are you willing to go and tell the gospel? Are you willing to take opportunities to go and tell the gospel? Are you praying for opportunities to go and tell the gospel? Are you praying for courage to go and proclaim the gospel? We are called to go and to tell. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came, committed no sin, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead three days later, ascended to the Father, and he calls all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to follow Jesus Christ with their life. That is the call of the gospel. Now, thinking a little bit more on the significance of the resurrection, we, we already thought a little bit of the resurrection and when we saw the tomb was occupied once again by the two angels and the mercy seat and Jesus providing atonement for the sins of God's people. But what other significance does the resurrection have? Well, the resurrection gives us eternal life. Silicon Valley is, is on a mission to solve the problem of mortality, to try to figure out how can man live forever, or at least a little longer. China's first emperor, his, China's first ever emperor, sent out his subjects on a mission to, to find the elixir of life which was understood to grant immortality to the person who drinks it. 16th century France, the nobles would actually drink gold, believing that it actually prolonged their life. There was a show, 2015 or 2016, in MTV called Obsessed with Being Young or something like that, and one of the people in that show, whatever you want to call it, actually used to bathe in pig's blood, thinking that that would actually help to maintain their youth. Sorry, that ruined your appetite for lunch. And people get plastic surgery, surgeries on their face because they want to remain young. Why do people go through these things, through these efforts? Why do people do all these things? It is because the Bible tells us that God has placed, etern- has, has placed eternal life in the heart of every person. Within the heart of every single person, there is a desire, whether they know it or not, to live forever. And it's not a bad desire to have because, again, the Scriptures tell us that God placed that desire in the human heart. People naturally want to live forever, but we get into problems when we look for it in the wrong places, in the wrong things, or when we look for it for the wrong reasons. And even if, even if Silicon Valley or whoever was able to solve the problem of mortality and 
be able to come up with something, whether it's stopping the cells from aging or somehow transferring someone's consciousness into some kind of android body. If you could solve the problem of mortality like that and give somebody immortality, my question is, well, even if I could have that, why would I want to live it here? Why would I? Right, there's, there's hatred, there's violence, there's, there's rage. Of course, a lot of good things happen in the world, but a lot of bad happens in the world. I could have A, right, live here in this world forever, or I could have B, eternal life with Christ, a new heavens and a new earth, a place where Jesus says there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. I have a glorified body that cannot sin, and not even that, but you'll have a glorified body that won't even want to sin. I'd rather have this one, I'd rather have B than I would, I, that I would have, that I would, and I would not want A. Essentially, that there's, there's an effort to try to conquer death. But death, by human means, is unconquerable. Sadly, is a natural part of life. Every time we see or hear of somebody dying, we should be reminded that something is, is inherently wrong with this world. It's not normal. Death is not meant to be normal. It was never a part of the original design or intention of God, but it is a result or a consequence of the first sin of Adam. And it's a consequence of our sins. It's not bad to conquer death as long as we know that the only one who conquered death is Jesus Christ and the only way that we can conquer death is by believing in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ through his resurrection paves the way for us to be resurrected as well, that we will also be resurrected in his likeness. And when we know that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ, that gives us hope. There's an incredible hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And hope is what we all need. Is hope is what the world needs right now. If you have hope, you can, you can feel like you can, you're just invincible. Like you can get through anything. And that hope, that hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it guarantees our resurrection. It guarantees our eternal life with Christ. It guarantees that Jesus Christ will one day return and establish a new heavens and a new earth. When we have that hope, no matter the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the distress that there is in the world, you can still have peace because you know that your hope doesn't come from whatever is happening in the world. Your hope comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for sinners, the guarantee of immortality through Jesus Christ. That's where our hope comes from. That is a hope that fortifies the believer today to be able to endure just about anything. It doesn't make, it doesn't remove all the problems of your life, but it makes them much more bearable. When you have a hope that solidifies the ground beneath you. So may we live with that kind of hope that only comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me pray for us. Jesus, your word tells us in 1 Peter that you are the living hope. Our hope cannot be extinguished because our hope continues to live at the right hand of the Father. Help us to reflect on that glorious reality. Give us hope, Lord. Give us the hope to continue. Give us the hope to persevere. Give us the hope to endure the trials of this life so that we may run this race well until we get to that finish line and, be, and receive the unfading crown given to us by the Father. 
We trust you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please join me in worship and stand. By grace alone, by grace alone, somehow I stand. Where even angels fear to tread. Invited by redeeming love. Before the throne of God above. He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands. Into his everlasting arms. my heart and Satan tempts me to despair I hear the voice that scatters fear the great I am the Lord is here oh praise the one who fights for me shields my soul eternally and this is our reality and boldly I approach your throne blameless now I'm running home by your blood I come welcomed as your own into the arms of majesty Behold the bright and risen sun More beauty than this world has known Just like Mary I'm face to face with love himself Spotless righteousness and no a thousand years, a thousand tongues are not enough to sing his praise.
as he declares us sons and daughters, our only response is to live lives that give glory to him as we live in relationship with him and express the gospel in our lives to others. As we come to our time of benediction, I invite you to listen closely to this prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, go forth this week, being filled with Jesus Christ, who fills all in all. You are dismissed until we return again, Lord willing.